Heavenly Father, um, it is a remarkable thing that you would speak to us. I pray that that would land. We gather, some of us gather every single week, some of us open our Bibles every single day, and you're speaking to us. May we come to this book, not, not like any other book, not merely as ink on a page, but what it is, is you're living in active word. Today, we don't merely want to, to hear your word. We can understand it. We can, we can read it. We could reread it. We could memorize it, but what we need is to believe it. So we ask for the work of the Spirit to, to, to soften our hearts and um, sharpen our minds, to tenderize our souls. This text offers us freedom and forgiveness if we'd hear it. What we need more than anything else as we gather in this place is not tips on how to make our relationships work better, not not how to parent our kids with more kindness, God, not how to get along with our coworkers, not how to just even deal with our past. All those things are, are, are declared or inferred in this text, but what we need is to, to leave this time more impressed with Jesus. So might you make him very loud. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I'll give you a little background on how we prep for a Sunday service, and I think this will help to lead in to this text. And so typically we'll We'll, we'll spec out sermon series months and months in advance, sometimes year plus in advance. And so each week has a text and, and usually a theme. And we really try to let not, not the sermon drive the service, but really the text. We want there to be some continuity between the beginning of the service and the songs that are picked and some of the prayers that are shared and the way it moves into communion and then the songs that we sing. And then even at the very end of the service, the benediction, this, this good word from the Lord that we get to leave this place as we're commissioned and sent out into the world until we gather back together again. And so this week was no different. I'd, I'd laid out, here's the series for Advent and Derek uh, Schrock, who has served as our music director so faithfully, he, he usually looks at it and we talk through like, what are some songs that would be appropriate and really help to land on people and kind of help us take this theme and really work it out. And, and he sent me back a message this week. Usually he looks at it before and then he sends me something out early in the week and says, hey, so I just want to confirm that you're doing the text you said you were doing around this theme. And I said, I am. And he said, okay, that's kind of, you know, so you still want to do John chapter 8 verses 2 through 11? And I said, yes, I'm still going to do that. And then the reason I think he was stumbling is, he, and then he, then he asked me, he says, you still want to do the text about the woman caught in adultery for Christmas? Yeah, that common Christmas text. And, um, and I was like, oops. Yes, I do. And uh, it kind of made me stumble for a second as he has a little winky face emoji staring at me on the screen. Um, because the focus of this text isn't on a specific sin. It's upon the incredible love of Christ for all sinners. And it's stunning. Specifically, we're going to look at two things today. We're going to look at how Jesus disarms us and then how Jesus comforts us. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? John chapter 8, we'll start at verse 2, read to verse 11. The first reference to he in here is speaking of Jesus. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. 
And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Feel free to grab a seat. Now, if you want to insult someone in the life of the local church, you call them the P word. You call them a Pharisee. It's a dirty word. But it wasn't that way at this time. And for us to understand the context of what's going on here, it's helpful just to do a quick primer on what's a Pharisee. We have this reference to scribes and Pharisees who find this woman, who catch this woman in this act, and they bring her publicly in front of other people to enact a judgment on her. And the scribes, these were the Bible scholars. These were, these were the people that had the PhDs and they studied the Bible and they, they knew the languages because it was written in their language at the time. But, but that's, what, I mean, that's what the scholars did. They just knew the ins and outs of the Bible. And the Pharisees were like the religious role models. They, they, they were the ones that when, when May hits they're still caught up on their Bible plan. They didn't fall behind once. They, their tithe record is immaculate. They, they serve faithfully. They're really good at praying. They, 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 their, their lives look impeccable. Their, their, their browser histories are, are clean. They were respected. One scholar talked about the Pharisees are like the, the respected upper middle class of the church. And they find this woman, they, they, they drag her in front of people. And, and you got to understand, when they did this, people followed their lead. They, they were respected. They were looked up to by everyone except for Jesus. If you go through the gospel accounts, the, there's four books of, of the Bible, the last two-thirds part of your Bible called the New Testament, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And you will see the people that Jesus has the most beef with is not sinners, but Pharisees. And this text gives us a really clear, very human, very sensitive, very tender example of why that is. And I would say this. I think one of the reasons Jesus had such an issue with the Pharisees is that Pharisees are really good at catching other people in sin while simultaneously being very blind to their own. And that creates this framework for this interaction that happens in this this text, they're really good at catching others in sin while simultaneously really good at being blind to their own. Uh, uh, Larry Osborne, um, author of a bunch of books, pastor, wrote a book called Accidental Pharisees. Found it really, really helpful. I'd recommend it, you know, eat the meat, spit the bones. But in it, he begins it with this premise of like, nobody starts out wanting to be a Pharisee. Not anymore. I mean, you, you, you come to know Christ and you know His grace and His kindness and His forgiveness and His mercy. And it starts in this place of gentleness, forgiveness, 
But over time, sometimes the zealousness of our faith and our desire to, to, to take the things of God seriously and to take sin seriously and to take holiness seriously and to take the purity of the church seriously can flip us into acting this way. can go sideways. And when it does, it begins to hurt people. Today's text, um, in some ways, can be used as a, a warning or a, a mirror for us on what to watch out for in our lives, lest we do what these scribes and Pharisees did in this text. Because when we do, it just hurts people. I was talking to a buddy, recently lives in upstate New York, and he was at a member meeting for his church recently. And at the member meeting, um, there was somebody new, newer to the church that was coming in, and they were going through a membership, membership process where, where you're committing to be a part of the church, and they're committing to be a part of your life, and it's supposed to be this beautiful thing where you're, you're covenanting together to say, man, I want to look more like Jesus. I know I'm going to get derailed, but these people are saying, we're committed to you, and that person's saying, I'm committed to you, and we're going to share our resources. It's supposed to be so beautiful, and this, this guy gets up, this young guy gets up, and he shares his, his testimony. He shares, like, this is how Jesus got a hold of me shares that story, and then they ask him to, to step out of the meeting. And then one of the deacons stands up and starts to read the list of his sins. Part of the membership process is they tear into your life, and they find out all the stuff you struggle with, and then they share that with the membership, and then the members all talk with one another about whether or not we should let this person in. And I was like, what the? It's crazy. Oh, what a good desire for discipleship and holiness and godliness, but is that the way to do it? This happens so many times over the years where I'll be doing premarital with a couple, and in premarital, you get into a lot of very deep, personal, meaningful things, good things to talk about, sometimes very painful things. One of the people will be part of our church, and then one of, one of them is part of another church, and I'm doing their premarital, and we'll, we'll get to something, and some, some really big stuff gets revealed, and complicated and painful, impactful, and, I, and I'll ask a question as they share some sin and some struggles. I'll, I'll, I'll say, well, well what, what did your pastor say about this? They'll look at me and, and say, oh, I, I, I would never tell my pastor about this. I would never tell my church about this. They would destroy me. I was like, what? How does that happen? Where a woman gets caught in sin and we drag her in front of people that we might enact judgment. How does that happen? The same story is played out all the time. It's played out in church environments. It's played out in homes between spouses. It's played out with parents and kids. It's played out amongst friends where we don't really want to get found out because of how we might get handled. And Jesus wants something more for us. And so in this text, what Jesus does is he disarms us. I love, I love the kindness of Christ, I love the gentleness of Christ, I love the mercy of Christ, I love, uh, uh, I love the strength of Christ. I mean, Jesus was a, a flawless and faithful friend, but Jesus was also brilliant. And in one line, Jesus defends, protects, frees this woman, and convicts every single heart that was present. And I pray he would do the same for us today, that in one line, he would arrest every single one of our hearts, and here's the line. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Jesus' statement, what it's doing is it's pushing all of the hearers to not just see the sin in someone else, but to also see the sin in themselves. And when Jesus says this, one of the the texts it reminds me of is uh, out of the Gospel of Matthew, there's this beautiful section between chapters 5 to to 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' blueprint for human flourishing. He says, this is how societies will flourish if you would do it. And in chapter 7, he, he uses this illustration. He says, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And what that's not saying is that you can never judge anyone. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying you got to do something first before you start enacting judgment on someone else. Here's what you need to do. And he says, what you're doing, you're kind of like this person. And Jesus goes, you're like this person who keeps seeing the speck in someone else's eye, this little tiny sliver while you have a log coming from yours. It's like the picture of a sequoia tree jabbed into your face while this person's got just a little tiny like eyelash in their eye. And he's saying, do this. Deal with the log in your eye. Then you'll be able to deal with the splinter in someone else's. See, the Pharisees forgot that. All they could do is see the sin of someone else. And when we're doing that, that's that's all we see, the sin of someone else. We're blind to our own sin. Parents are the worst at this. Amen? Amen? As adults, you can say it too because you know what? You had parents and they were the worst. Parents are the worst. The worst at seeing the sin in their own lives as they're correcting their kids. A very common occurrence in the Barrett household. We'll be watching football. Football's up on the screen and I'll be sitting on the couch, fires on, families all gathered, having this family time. And I look around the room and everyone's got their iPhone and everyone's staring at their screen. And I'm like, this is family time. Put your screens away. And then one of my kids says, Dad, well, does that include the iPad that you're looking at right now? <laughs> Anyone else? You guys are on screens too much. These are glued to my face. I mean, it, how about this? I mean, this, this hasn't happened in my home, but it's probably happened in yours where, you know, two siblings, they're fighting with each other. Why are you so mean to me? Why are you? Don't treat me that way. You're being... And then, then the parents, they jump in and say, stop yelling at your sister. Be kind. They don't parent like that. <laughs> Parents are the absolute, and Jesus is a, let him who is without sin, let him who hasn't been gruff and cranky and angry. Jesus is trying to tenderize us so they might be gentle with people as they make a mess of their lives. A couple of parenting tips. I try to remember these and I forget them all the time, but I'll give you a few of them that relate to this. Do you know it's no easier for your kids to repent of sin than it is for you? It's no easier. Like being human is hard. Making good choices is hard. This woman made bad choices. It's hard. I sometimes think about this with um, like kind of a false sense of my own maturity. And if I see one of my kids struggle with something, I, I, when I'm when I'm thinking rightly, I'll sometimes do this, like, well, I'm 44, and I'm still struggling with that, and they're 13, so they get at least 31 more years to figure it out. It just helps to give some perspective. And Jesus, in his statement, this beautiful, wise, clever, you ever, I'm just impressed by the cleverness of Christ. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a sin. He's saying, deal with the log in your eye. One of the questions we might ask about this text is, why is it that the people that walk away first are the older people? 
It's a really interesting insight into this text. It says, you know, Jesus says this, he's riding on the ground, and, and then the text makes this reference, it says, and, and the, the, those who are older, they walk, they were the first to walk away, and, and here would be my suggestion of, of why that happens. Life has a way of humbling us, doesn't it? Sometimes we can be so young and so full of zealousness and fire for the Lord, and decade after decade as we then begin to see some of the choices we make, it just begins to humble us. You know, some of the, some of the most dangerous words you could ever say are something like this, I'd never do that. Yes, you would. Just give it time. And so often what creates this pharisaical condemning heart is not just blindness to our sin, but it's blindness to our own immaturity that still, still, we're still growing. One of the things I love about this text is Jesus rehumanizes this person. In the text, it says, this woman, such woman. Jesus just looks at her and tenderly calls her woman, which is a term of endearment here. It's a term of respect. They were talking about her. Jesus talked with her. I love that in a text like this, it reminds us that sinners are not just sinners, they're people struggling and sometimes our harshness with others, and maybe even with yourself, is that you forget your dust. God remembers our frame. We forget it all the time. And Jesus steps in and he humanizes. I love the way Dean Ortland says this in Gentle and Lowly. Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was one of giving back to undeserving sinners their humanity. He saw people. He, spent, he, he, he gave them a touch. He, he embraced them. He shared meals with them. He, he did this such a range. As you look at the humanizing work of Christ, what this narrative was doing, these Pharisees, they were dehumanizing. They were devaluing. What was Jesus trying to write? It's always this never-ending debate with this text. If you've ever heard this preach or you studied, there, is, there's just, it, there are so many different things that Christ is writing. They're all guesses. I'm not even going to give you a guess, but I will ask you this. Why did Jesus do that? Well, here's one of the things that it did in this text, and you see it with this back and forth interaction. It gave people space to ponder what he was saying. One of the things that Christ is doing with the scribes and Pharisees is he was giving them space to, to question their questions, to question their motives, to question their approach. And it's one of the things that God does for us. It's one of the gifts that he gives us is even in a moment like this to get us to sit under his statement, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone and then to give us space. And by grace to get us to drop our stones before you fire back at your kids. Before we heap condemnation on our spouse for screwing up again. Before we get just livid with our coworkers. Just to have a moment of pause that I might be able to approach it differently. Really what Jesus is doing is giving us space to disarm us. And then in this text, what he does is he moves us then to actually comfort us in the midst of our folly. In this text, um, the word caught is used a few different times um, up, in, up in verse 3, and that word is really important. Caught, caught. But I want you to hear this. The issue in this text is not that sin is found out. It's how the sinner is treated when it's found out. The issue in your life, and the thing that most of us, if we're going to be honest, that we're probably most afraid of is that our stuff actually gets seen. And I say that as someone who's really scared. 
But the issue is actually not being found out. What we'll see is actually that's the pathway towards forgiveness and freedom. I was thinking about this. Um, having, your, having things found out can actually be such a, such a gift. Uh, Dane Burgess, who's our, our family director, been, been a part of the church, been on staff for a long time. He was... Uh, he was hosting the GC, gospel community, groups of people in our church that get together just to share life and talk about Jesus and pray for each other, care for each other. They were doing a party, and at this party, they were going to have some beer and wine. And someone was newer to the church and asked him, said, hey, you know, it's great you're all getting together, but I mean, having like some beer and wine there, I mean, what happens if somebody gets drunk? And, and Dane's response, I think, was, was perfect. He says, well, I'll drive him home. And then I'll call them the next day, I'll see how they're feeling, and I'll ask if I could help. What if? And, and, and what I love about it is he said, if that didn't happen, we might never know. I love that there wasn't this fear. It's not that we want to sin, but there wasn't this fear that, oh, goodness, do you know that you're in a room of people that are going to sin? Oh. It's like we want it to get found out so that it might get forgiven, so we have to sit alone in it. 18 plus years ago, a little over 18 years ago, October 1st, uh, 2003, I started serving as a pastor. It was the first time I'd served as a pastor. I was uh, invited to be a pastor at Christ the King Community Church in town. I'd just moved from Boston where I was finishing up my Master of Divinity degree, and I had one class left. And so I'm in this new job as the marriage and family pastor. I'm in my office, and I'm taking my final exam in Christian ethics. You can see where this is going to go. So I'm taking my Christian ethics exam, and I'm sitting there as a new pastor in this new church that I'm serving and trying to love, and I get to a question in the Christian ethics exam, what is the fruit of the Spirit? So closed Bible exam. Got to that question, and my brain just, just glitched. Can remember a few of them? Can remember all of them? I remember sitting there. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Bible. Fruit of the Spirit. Bible. Oh, I know where it is in the Bible. I mean, I don't want my professor to think I don't know what this is. I don't know why I cared so much. But I, I, it's like it was mortifying to me that I wouldn't know what the fruit of the Spirit was. And so, after a couple minutes, grab my Bible, flip to the text, and look. Close my Bible put it down. I didn't change my answer, but I wasn't free. Remember, um, just for months, it was just weighing on me. The time I would wake up early, it was the time I was living on the north side of town, I'd wake up early, I'd do my Bible time outside to try to keep me awake, and um, I'd have like a sleeping bag on with it like wrapped over my head at like four in the morning. I just thought my neighbors just was like, that guy is psycho. Um, but every time I did, all I could think about was what I'd done. Yeah, I know the fruit of the Spirit now, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Do you know the last one? Self-control. That's the one I forgot. Self-control. And so I, um, I got a hold of my professor. I sent him a message and said, this is what I did. He said, thank you for telling me. Took it to a disciplinary committee. So now like a bunch of my professors know. And they sent me back a message and said, we've voted, you failed the exam. So I still passed, I still got my degree, um, but I failed, but I was free. Sin being found out wasn't the problem. The 
It's what we do with it. It's how we're handled in it. It's how we're treated in it. And I know I say that in a room of people that have probably, I guarantee, have been mishandled when your sin has been seen. I love this line by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, we're going to skip the, the Psalm 32 text, but this line by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Before this woman was caught, she was utterly alone, even though she was with somebody. And all the fear and the guilt and the shame, utterly alone. But listen to this, but it is the grace of the gospel that confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great, desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner you are to the God who loves you. Get found out and forgiven. Get found out and freed. The Psalm 32 text I was going to talk about is like, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. But when I, when I stayed quiet, it's like I lost all my strength. It's like my bones were rotting. You know how that is when you know what you're carrying and you don't want anyone to see it and it hasn't come out and you just, you're just nervous and worried and afraid and ashamed. And I get it because some of us grew up in cultures and homes and churches where when you got found out, you got crushed. If it came out, they were picking up stones, but there's a better way because there is a better God. Advent, that we're celebrating, Advent meaning the arrival, is this glorious reminder of the coming love of God to flood into our messes. Uh, John 3.16, very, very popular, very good, very, very wonderfully appropriate Christmas verse, probably more so than Romans 8, um, but it's, or, or John 8 is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. The, the motivation for Christ to come is love. He so deeply, passionately, perfectly, uninterruptingly loved that he sent his son. I love the Christmas hymn, Love Came Down at Christmas. Love all lovely, love divine. That we don't have to stay hidden. That we can get found out and forgiven. Or as Thomas Goodwin said, Christ is love covered over in flesh. And what this love does is it doesn't just come and sit with us and our sin is that it forgives us our sin. I, you know, try and picture what it would be caught to be this one who's caught, who's dragged, exposed, surrounded by people that are angry, that don't care about her. And then to hear these words, neither do I condemn you. That may be one of the greatest gifts that I could offer to you this Christmas season is those words of Christ. And whatever you're carrying, whatever you're afraid to have revealed, whatever is hidden, whatever message you're thinking about is this, neither do I condemn you. Hear those words of Jesus spoken over you. All those things you don't want seen, all those things you don't found out, that they would be met with this mantra of grace. Neither do I condemn you. Moms, for the ongoing crankiness that you have with your kids and the way you snap at them. Here's Christ's words to you. Neither do I condemn you.
to those in this room that can clear their browser history, but not their conscience. Jesus looks at you and he says, neither do I condemn you. For those here who may be in some moments of sobriety, look back over the last couple years, seeing the things that they've said and done on social media with such anger and malice and disdain for others. In Christ, Jesus looks at you. He says, neither do I condemn you. For those here that are struggling with addiction, well, you wake up and you say, that's it, I'm not doing it again. And then you do it again. In love, Christ looks at you and says, neither do I condemn you. For those here who just kind of tuned out, you kind of distracted, you, kinda, you self-medicated however you did. You know, you've, it's not all the bad that you did, but the, the good that Christ called you to that you have not done. Jesus looks at you, he doesn't pick up a stone. He says, neither do I condemn you. And for a million other things that are represented by this room, Christ in his grace and his mercy and his love, he looks at you, he says, neither do I condemn you. John 3.16 is a beast of a Christmas text. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But if you go to verse 17, this is what you read. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You and your sin and me and my sin getting found out is not that we'd be condemned, it's that we might be forgiven. Jesus isn't stingy with his love. He's not stingy with, he's not austere He's not difficult to win over. He doesn't catch you in sin and pick up a stone. He hurls love. Dane Ortland's book, How Does God Change Us, says it like this. God's affection for his own never wanes. It never sours. It never cools. That thing about you that makes you wince most only strengthens his delight in embracing you. It's your point of deepest shame and regret. That's where Christ loves you the most. They say it this way, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Or again, Orland, divine love is not calculating and cautious like ours. The God of the Bible is unrestrained. If we are united to Jesus Christ, our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Though our sins will make us more miserable, they cause his love to surge forward all the more. You know, with this text, I get really frustrated with parts of this passage. There are some things that really, really make me, I, I, the, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, the lack of regard for this woman as a person, the fact that they're using her as a, a pawn to try to trap Jesus, and it's stuff like this, like, where's the guy? Like, I mean, some of these things should kind of disturb us a little bit about a passage like this. And because I kind of, I get so frustrated with some of the different characters in this, this passage, one of the things that I want to do is recast this woman is, is somehow that she did nothing wrong. But she did something wrong. She was a huge sinner. And what she did wasn't okay but that makes the story even better. I love that in this passage, there's no question of her guilt. She was guilty. Let me give you a wonderful Redeemer, warm-hearted Christmas gift. You don't need to ask if you're guilty. You're guilty. Like, we're going to do Christmas cards next year. It'll be like, Merry Christmas. We'll open it up and say, you are guilty. You don't have to question. You are. You're guilty. So what we want to do, though, is ask is, what does God do with the guilty? What does he offer? 
forgiveness. If we'd believe. Dane Ortland again in his book, Gentle and Lowly. It is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God. Not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. See, Christianity begins at the place that, that you confess, I can't do it. I've made a mess of things. I have rebelled. I have sinned. And oh, yes, I might have been mistreated. But these are the choices I made before a holy God. Would you have grace with me? Would you have mercy? Would you be tender with me? And it's so counterintuitive. I would say that Christianity is so counterintuitive. Every, every other belief system, every other world religion, the way our culture works is always some formula of, okay, I need to perform and then I'll be accepted. Christianity works upon grace and love and mercy and kindness, so much so. I was thinking about how counterintuitive this is. I was thinking about Ephesians chapter 3, so this beautiful letter written to this church in Ephesus by a guy named Paul who planted, he's writing back to them, and at the end of chapter 3, he has this incredible, incredible prayer. He says, I am praying for you. And what he's not praying for, he's not praying that they're better with their Bibles, he's not praying that they're godlier, he's not praying that they, they fight sin, he's not praying that they give more, he's not praying they're generous, he's praying that they're more effective evangelists, all really good things. Do you know what he prays for? Because he knows it's what's the hardest thing for us to believe, that they know they're loved by God. He says, oh, I pray that you might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. You would know the height and the depth and the, the, the breadth and the length of the God, that, that, that God's love is higher, deeper, wider, and longer than your guilt. And I get it. It's so easy to say it. It's really hard as we get in the nooks and crannies of this week and we look at the reality of our lives. And over that, God is saying, neither do I condemn you. God's heart of compassion, Dane Ortland says, confounds our intuitive predilections about how he loves to respond to his people if they would but dump in his lap the ruin and wreckage of their lives. He isn't like you. Even the most intense of human love is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartfelt thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you to the radiant resplendence. This word means glittering, brilliant, dazzling, for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. He doesn't limit himself to working with the unspoiled parts of us that remain after a lifetime of sinning. His power runs so deep that he is able to redeem the very worst parts of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. I asked my wife, I think yesterday, I say, hey, honey, how does, how does this line land on you? Neither do I condemn you. So what's it make you feel? She goes, relieved. And then I finished the verse. Because <laughs> there's a little bit more in the text. I said, well, how about this one? Go, and from now on, sin no more. And, she, and I said, how does that make you feel? She goes, fear. <laughs> it's pretty honest. And some of us might read this, and we might feel fear. Or we might feel panic. Or we might feel pressure. But don't forget the one that said, go and sin no more. It's also the one that said, neither do I condemn you. It's an interesting line where he says, he who is without sin, let them be the first to throw a stone. The only one that was righteously enabled to throw a stone was Christ because he was and is without sin, and yet he didn't pick up a stone. 
in the story of Advent, the story of the gospel, is that God in love sent his son to be born in a manger and ultimately go to a cross where the stones were then picked up of divine judgment and hurled at Christ instead of you. And so when you hear Christ say this, what he's, what he's doing is he's inviting you to forgiveness and freedom because he knows that sin makes us miserable even though it will never make us less loved. It's one of the gifts that God gives to us through the giving of his son. I don't know. I love John 8 as a Christmas text because it shows off why Jesus was born and why he died to get right into the mess of our lives that we might be able to live uncondemned, forgiven, and freed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, might you allow the truths of this text and the truths of the gospel to get into the nooks and crannies of our lives that, frankly, we want to keep hidden. Let this text tenderize us. Let this text comfort us. Because this text points to our Savior who came to live and die for all who would trust in him. As a man prone to wander and still so full of sin, thank you that in your your love, it's higher and deeper and wider and longer than my guilt or any of ours. That gives us great reason to rejoice. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.